Right now, though, talking about a story you just heard in the news and people being told the newest report out has to do with inflation. Statistics Canada saying the consumer price index rose 4.1% in August compared with the same month one year earlier. Energy prices are not going away. We're starting to see some sustained pressure on food prices. Home prices are still an issue and now wage pressures are starting to, uh, to, to pick up a bit. So... You know, as much as I think this might be close to the height of inflation, I don't see it pulling back very quickly over the next year either. That was BMO Chief Economist Douglas Porter. We want to talk a bit more about this, so we are going to bring in Rob Levy, CKNW Business Analyst. Good afternoon to you. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Thanks so much for doing this. What is your takeaway or or your biggest takeaway from the inflation numbers we're seeing today? You know, following what Doug Porter just said in in that clip, he sort of nailed it in the sense that everybody was talking about inflation and it's going to be short term, it's going to be transitory. And that's what these numbers today aren't very different from that theme. I think they give people confidence that a lot of these pressures uh, are, are still transitory. But some of the other effects that we're seeing in terms of higher prices will continue on and they're not going to dissipate or maybe go back down as quickly, maybe, on the other end of it, as people are expecting. And a couple examples, uh, he talked about food prices. Um, Sylvain Charlebleau, who's always quoted in the Globe and Mail and the Canadian press, uh, out of Dalhousie University and studies food inflation across Canada, he says the average Canadian family is going to spend about $700 more this year on groceries. So that's that's just one example. Uh, housing replacement costs, but, you know, looking at the the cost of new homes and, you know, accounting for the fact that mortgage rates are, are, are you know, record lows. So it, what we're paying in terms of interest sort of discounts some of that as our purchasing power has gone, gone further. But housing still up significantly. Gasoline prices back up again. So, uh, you know, some of the short term spikes like what we're seeing in the furniture market, vehicle market, those should be worked out. Uh, but the other stuff could be here and a little more persistent a little longer, I think, than people were originally expecting. And when we look at those numbers that were released today with the 4.1% increase compared to a year ago, are they skewed a bit in that are we comparing them to pandemic numbers where the numbers were artificially low? So we're looking at what appears to be a bigger increase? Absolutely right there too, Jill. And that's where economists talk about the base effects. So when we talk about inflation, it's either they're talking about a monthly rise. So you know, CPI was up 0.2% in August from July. But then what's more meaningful and impactful to a lot of people is the year-over-year numbers. So that's that 4.1% measure. And and as you said, you know, last summer we were in a lockdown, especially as we compare the summer-over-summer metrics. You know, a lot of things were stagnant and at a standstill. As one example, and they, they bring this into the report, but it's meaningless to a lot of people, airline flights were up something like 32.5%. But everyone knows very well that if you go book a flight wherever you're going, you know, it might be, you know, across Canada, five, $600. But it's not a 32.5% increase that, you know, you're paying additionally in terms of what it, what it costs to fly. And that's where, especially when, when uh, you know, some economists will, will cite the two-year average for inflation, it's sort of riding back closer to that 2% level. So as you said, the base effects, skew things a little bit you know we had that huge decline in oil prices last year so that's why you've got an over 30 percent increase in energy but still with the oil prices holding around 70 dollars a barrel don't expect we're paying at the 
the gas station pump to be any cheaper anytime soon. Hmm. All right. So not if anybody was hoping for that, not, not going to happen. Uh, how concerned do you think we should be, though, when we're looking at government spending, at record spending? And granted, it was to help people in the earlier days and getting through a pandemic. But with the, that huge amount of spending and no end to that in sight, how concerned should we be seeing inflation go up like this? That, I think, gets into a deeper question sort of about the economy. And one is how quickly does the government then begin to pull away and pull back that excess spending? So if it is actually transitory over the course of the pandemic and relief measures and stimulus measures to help people wade through a difficult time, it's not necessarily inflationary because they're going to take it away once the economy gets up. It gets up and rolling again. Um, the other factor of that is whether you actually start seeing money turn over at a, a, a higher pace or what they refer to as velocity, which can create an uptick in inflation. But there's, there's really no signs of that yet. So whether or not, you know, this excess government spending is sort of transitory with the pandemic and it's not just short term spending that, you know, debases a currency, I think impacts whether it's inflationary. And there hasn't been the signs yet. And it certainly doesn't trouble the mainstream economists that that kind of increased government spending is is going to be extremely inflationary here in the short term. Uh, There was another story out today as well saying that home improvement projects have become a lot more affordable, a lot cheaper due to an abrupt crash in the price of lumber. That's certainly something that people have been watching through the pandemic as well, a huge increase in the price of lumber. So what are your thoughts on the fact we're seeing those prices come down? Yeah, it's one sort of aspect of it. And, you know, as we saw with lumber prices through the pandemic, it was one of those things where it was an extremely uh, short supply and raw materials especially got impacted. And lumber, you know, went from $400 per thousand board feet all the way up to 1300 And then, as you said, it crashed again. So that's one area where it's got cheaper. But when you look at sort of a basket of commodities, because that's what affects us, uh, you know, it's not just wood prices or maybe if you're doing a home improvement project it is wood prices but sort of everything that goes into the equation not all markets have sort of come back to reality the way the lumber market was you know things like steel and aluminum and and what goes into vehicle prices you know those are still very tight markets so lumber prices you're certainly right it's come back to reality there's no sticker shock when you're walking the aisles of home depot looking for a sheet of plywood or a two by four uh but you know one of the interesting ones is kind of the weirdest phenomenons I think out of this pandemic because of what we've seen with you know materials that go into it and and also the microchip story has been autos and cars and new cars up over seven percent so if it's not home prices it'll be another area where there's higher prices. All right one other question Rob just before I let you go the governor of the Bank of Canada said at this point that the central bank would step in if these price pressures become persistent but at this point looking at it more temporary what are your thoughts on that? The Bank of Canada is trying to shape the narrative now that they're doing two different things. One is their quantitative easing and their bond buying program. The other is is maneuvering overnight interest rates. And we know interest rates are very close to zero right now. What they're trying to do, like most of the central banks in the world, is sort of decouple the two and stop us from thinking about their bond buying program as stimulus. So they're preparing us for the fact that if this economy stays tight and continues to stay tight, everyone's saying end of 2022, maybe it's 2023, uh, but don't be surprised if the bank steps in and raises interest rates. I don't think they want to just yet because this is an economy that's escaping a pretty severe downturn, although it looks like it's doing well the way that governments and central banks have, have responded. 
uh, but they're certainly ready. And everybody sees and views the Bank of Canada as one of the Western central banks that's out in front and could probably and very likely be the first one to raise interest rates. All right, uh, Rob, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking more about this. Nice to chat with you, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, earlier today, a flotilla protest got underway just off the waters of Granville Island. So we are going to check in with one of those who is part, one of those taking part in this protest. James Lawson is a United Fisherman and Allied, is with the United Fisherman and Allied Workers Union. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Great. Yep. Uh, it was pretty windy out there today. How did things go? Yeah, it was blowing 35 low by Sandhead, so the not as much as a flotilla as we'd like, but um, yeah, we had some camera crews down. We were able to get our message across despite the weather. And what is that message? What are the issues that prompted this protest today? Um, the Pacific Salmon Strategy Initiative brought down by the minister immediately ahead of the commercial salmon season has really broken the backs of a lot of small businesses in BC. And the problem with it is that most people don't realize that these closures citing conservation are actually doing nothing in terms of helping biodiversity of salmon in BC because we already fish on abundance-based management plans anyways. And when you talk about salmon fisheries, which specific fisheries are you talking about? The ones that experienced closures were the commercial seine, commercial gillnet, commercial troll, and also some economic First Nations commercial fisheries. So there have been no closures on the sport or recreational fleet, whatever you want to call it. Um, There are fisheries going on in Alaska and Washington on the same stocks. It's just BC commercial fisheries that have been hit. I thought there was there were closures when it came to sport fisheries, and that it just uh, came about a couple weekends ago that they were only allowed to start retaining salmon at that point. Uh, as far as I know, that's status quo. Where throughout the year, the management plans will allow for certain harvests of fish from different stakeholders. The difference with commercial fisheries is that ahead of the season it was decided that we would not be allowed to get in the water in some certain areas, regardless of what the returns were. And that did not affect the sports fleet. So they are in areas fishing where we have not been allowed. And when you talk about the conservation plans or the reasons given then for the shutdown of these fisheries, is it your thought then or your belief that they could go ahead in a way that is still mindful of salmon stocks and not in a way that would be detrimental? Absolutely. Like for myself, I'm a salmon saner. And in Area 3 up by the NAS this year, um, they have gone over their target escapement for the NAS and sockeye by about 100,000 pieces. And, you know, that could have been a surplus that really could have helped the gillnet and sane fleets earn some money and, you know, generate back through the communities up there. But since it was decided ahead of the season that that stock was struggling, we didn't get to fish it. Even though that stock came back, I think the best it's come back in almost 20 years. 
Did fishermen uh, in in your group, uh, saners, gillnetters, other commercial fishermen, were they able to access any of the programs? Uh, I realize this isn't COVID related, but were they able to access programs or have they been given any compensation? Uh, We did for COVID, but that was last year. For these closures, no, we have not received anything. So a lot of us are in a really tough position trying to scramble to, you know, pay back our COVID loans and our employment has been taken away. There has been no talk of a labor force adjustment program or anything like that. The only thing that's been offered is a license buyback program which doesn't help many people. Like you think of the pick fee program and ATP, they're federally funded programs where they hold the licenses for first nations participation in commercial fisheries. Well, they don't own the license or a guy like me, I run the center for the Canadian fishing company. I don't own the license. So the people actually out there on the water in most cases are not being compensated. We're just out of a job and we have nothing to look forward to. Uh, what Were there fishing opportunities then, and I know it's license-specific, but were there opportunities in other parts of the province where commercial fisheries did go ahead? Um, some, a few fisheries did proceed uh, according to the regular integrated fishery management plans, which is abundance-based management. So I think there have been three gillnet openings in Port Alberni Inlet, and the Saners got... I think three openings in area three in a very small area. So it's, you know, you could say we got a few openings, but it's next to nothing. I know that when the announcement was put out that this protest was going to be taking place today, it was clear or it was clarifying that this particular protest is aimed at Fisheries and Oceans Canada and the federal government, not at any other types of recreational or commercial boats. Have you had any response from Fisheries and Oceans Canada or anybody in the federal government to your concerns? No, since these came from the minister's office, um, they have gone into the caretaker convention mode and they're not really talking to anybody about this stuff. And when you go to DFO, they like their own fishery managers were as surprised at these closures as we were. Like we had, there were boats in areas like Bellacula waiting on grounds after all their pre-season preparations. They're waiting on grounds. They've put out the money to fix up their gear, get their boat proper, you know, buy the fuel, buy the grub. And then, the rug was pulled out from under us. So like the fisheries managers were just as surprised as us in a lot of cases. Hmm. And as the season is coming to a close for this year, in many cases or uh, in many areas, what does this mean for you going forward then? And then what are, you, what are your anticipations or, or thoughts of what might happen next year? Uh, what we've been told is that this is just the start. Um, so we don't know if we're facing more closures or our businesses this year have pretty well been unviable. So if these closures continue or more are added on and the only compensation is going to be a license buyback, like we're really staring down a huge gap in generational knowledge. Like there's not going to be a viable commercial fishing fleet for years to come if this keeps going. Uh, Are you? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's going to impact a lot of coastal communities, like a lot of First Nations, a lot of spin-off industries, our food security. 
Like, how is it going to feel to walk into a supermarket and have to buy a salmon from Russia? Because we can't get our own, even if the stock is there. And I guess that's where there, there is some confusion or, or that, that we hear different different takes on that in that we're often told that because the stocks are are um, not there or that because they're, they're seeing low returns, that's the reason for the closures. But uh, do you think more needs to be done then as far as getting that information out about stock numbers? Oh, I think the information is there. It's just a lot of people don't understand how these numbers are managed and it's really easy for I guess in this case the Liberal Party to say it's for conservation and people like that but the fact of the matter is that like salmon populations are managed in discrete populations like very small by the creek or by the river uh, called conservation units and if there's not enough coming back we don't fish so unless there is a surplus of fish or outside of like creek carrying capacity, we don't fish in the first place. So I have no idea where they're able to say that this is conservation, never mind like skirt around administrative fairness. This came down on us so suddenly and it is baseless. It has no base in conservation that we've been left adrift with nowhere to go because none of it makes sense in the first place. All right. Well, James, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I appreciate you taking some time on a busy day to do this and to join the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have been talking a bit about the cruise ship industry. It is set to be welcomed back at some point. Hopefully, I know many people are hoping that it will happen next season, but there are some questions, and we talked about this yesterday in part because of an op-ed that was written by Don Young, who is a congressman in Alaska. He is a Republican congressman from Alaska talking about the fact that he doesn't want that state to be held hostage when it comes to Canadian rules or having rules that make it so ships do have to stop at Canadian ports. Just before we get to our next guest, take a listen to this clip. It is from Barry Penner, legal advisor to Cruise Lines International. So just yesterday we had a follow-up meeting with BC government officials trying to gain a better understanding of what kind of rules and regulations the cruise industry might be facing in terms of health restrictions uh, next spring. Uh, This is still a work in progress. Uh, More detail will be required. But the lifting of interim order number six uh, and the prohibition against cruise ships ending at midnight on October 31st does send a positive signal that the cruise industry can start planning to uh, base itineraries coming into and out of uh, Canadian waters. Let's bring on Ian Robertson, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon. Barry Penner there is sounding very optimistic. What are your thoughts on the return of the cruise ship industry to the BC coast? Well, I think it's two separate uh, two separate issues. Number one, uh, uh, you know, I agree with uh, with Barry. Uh, the lifting of the interim order is welcome news and does send a signal that uh, crews will be welcomed back next year. But as you alluded to at the at the top of the story, at the top of this interview, uh, there are some concerning signals on the horizon uh, with the with the legislation that Congressman Young uh, may be working on. 
And do you think that could potentially stop cruise ships or keep cruise ships from keep it so they would be able to, if they chose to, would be able to skip ports in B.C.? Well, we, we faced this uh, in, in April of last year, or pardon me, April of this year, when uh, when there was legislation brought forward uh, uh, to try and get a temporary waiver. And I think, you know, all levels of government, both federal and provincial, were caught flat-footed, didn't think it would happen. And so I think we need to take this uh, legislation being proposed by Congressman Young very, very seriously. Uh, and uh, And I think government and industry need to work on this together. Uh, to lobby to lobby Washington uh, to signal that Canada and British Columbia are open for cruise and uh, and to work on a plan moving forward should we find ourselves you know in a similar situation where the ports are closed I know the premier was speaking with Jazz Joe Hall yesterday on the Jazz Joe Hall show and Jazz asked him about this. And again, he didn't seem, it wasn't a, a super high level of concern. Would you like to see more done as far as addressing this? Absolutely. I've, uh, I've just uh, reached out to and had conversations with the tourism ministry, uh, transportation uh, and, and some dialogue is going there. But we do need the Premier to be engaged at this level. I think there was some damage done uh, earlier in the spring, uh, and I think we need to uh, work together to try and repair that damage that was done. Uh, when we were talking about this yesterday on the program, <clears throat> following that conversation, I got an email from a listener saying, Hi, Jill. I work for a company that sells cruises. The ships are coming back to Vancouver starting next year. Most of the major cruise lines already have their deployment itineraries booked for 2023 to Alaska. They've been actively selling. She, she goes on to say they understand the value of coming to Vancouver and Victoria, as well as Prince Rupert, and most agree that going up the inside passage is much better. It's much better seen for people who are sailing. Uh, so she seems to think that, that things are great, that the bookings are going ahead, the cruise lines are already planning this. Do you think that's being overly optimistic? Uh, no, I don't. I think there is tremendous optimism uh, and demand for cruising again in 2022 and outwards of 2023. We've, uh, you know, we've received a, a tentative schedule for 2022, and it looks very promising. And we know that Alaska is one of the highly sought-after itineraries in the world. So, yes, there is optimism for cruise. Uh, however, uh, you know, we cannot take this legislation lightly. And uh, and while there there could be, uh, I think we we can all look forward to cruise coming back in 2022 and, and 2023. I, I think we have to be mindful that there is some there could be some challenges down the road. You know, we need to look at this a little bit differently. Vancouver is in a different spot than say a Victoria or a Prince Rupert or a Nanaimo. Vancouver is a home port uh, and is you know a highly highly regarded home port on the Alaska itinerary. And I think Vancouver is a little more insular from this particular legislation. However, I think ports like Victoria, Nanaimo, and Prince Rupert that are port of calls, this is very concerning for us. I'm glad you brought that up because it it does always, the question does always come up that if ships were to bypass those ports, the ones you mentioned, Victoria, Nanaimo, Prince Rupert, there's a question of could they still go up the inside passage or would they then have to go on the outside of Vancouver Island? And do you know which, which it would be? 
Well, my, my speculation is most of the ships that do depart Vancouver do travel up the inside passage, uh, and they would still continue on their way to Alaska and then come on back down to Vancouver. And because the ships leave Vancouver, they are technically ticking that box of an international stop. Uh, so, so a stop in between when the ships depart out of Vancouver is not required. Right. But wouldn't it be strange for people, if you're booking an Alaskan cruise that starts and ends in Vancouver, don't people want the experience of stopping in those ports? Well, it's interesting. A lot of people, uh, and let's face it, the majority of the cruisers are American. Uh, Many of the cruisers, uh, when they book uh, an itinerary, say, out of Seattle, which includes stops in Nanaimo or Prince Rupert and Victoria, they don't know they're coming to Canada. I'll be honest with you. Uh, While when they do come here, it's a very happy surprise. And they enjoy what Victoria has to offer. Uh, Seattle is very popular because it's a lot easier to connect into SeaTac from, say, Miami and, and Dallas than it is to connect into Vancouver. So that's why Seattle and Vancouver, they do uh, compete against each other uh, for the cruise ship's uh, departures. Uh, but uh, I do know that uh, um, for many of the guests, uh, Victoria is not on their radar, nor is it Nanaimo or nor is it Rupert. So it is important to understand that this waiver does play a significant role or the PVS, yeah, the PVSA waiver does play a significant role in, uh, in, in, in these ships stopping in these ports. But if somebody was taking a cruise that started in Seattle, would and if it's an American, wouldn't they clue in to the point that it's going to Canada in that it would be required that they had a passport, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, and that's why a passport is required. And, and I mean, I don't want to suggest that none of them are aware that they're coming here, but there are some, many of them, in fact. The majority of them don't know that they're making a stop in Victoria. They, they, what they're booking for is it is a trip to Alaska, and that is the highlight of their trips. But like I said, once they've spent some time in Victoria, uh, they enjoy the time they've had here. All right. I just want to add one more question about uh, Don Young's editorial when he, he put this uh, in, to, in the Vancouver Sun. And we talked about yesterday the fact that that was to make sure that people in B.C. saw what he was uh, talking about. So when he talks about the Tribal Tourism Sovereignty Act, which is what he introduced, talking about that the large foreign-owned or foreign-flagged passenger vessels, uh, they, they could then skip the, the stops. They would be able to skip the stops in in bc but are we from how i understood it he's talking about specific uh specific owned ships it wouldn't be it wouldn't suddenly be every cruise ship that is in the water yeah jill i don't know enough about kind of the u.s laws and how that would work to be able to comment on that so uh it's interesting what 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 congressman young is presenting i think the headline for me is that uh, what he's proposing would mean that there would be no longer that requirement uh, to make that stop in a Victoria or a Prince Rupert or an Nanaimo. Uh, when does this have to be dealt with, do you think, as far as uh, this year's cruise ship season is winding down? Uh, do we mm-hmm. need, is there an urgency to make sure there is clarity on this? Uh, but again, people are booking those cruises, so it does seem like we have cruises on the books that will involve BC ports. But how important is it that we deal with this issue and get clarity? 
Well, it's very important that we address it immediately. But this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. I don't think it's going to have any impact upon the 22 or perhaps even the 23 schedule. I think this is going to take a long time to play out in uh, in the floors of uh, Congress and the Senate. Uh, but in terms of, of responding and developing a plan to address this legislation, that's the piece that we need to work on immediately and take it seriously. All right. We will leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, we are going to talk uh, for uh, the next few moments uh, about an area in BC. It has just been designated a UNESCO biosphere region, a centerpiece for conservation and sustainable development. So what makes it? that type of region. Why has it been designated a UNESCO biosphere region? Joining me now to talk more about this is Ruth Simons, lead of the How Sound Biosphere Region Initiative Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, How big of a deal is it to get this kind of designation? (laughs) Well, it is something we can certainly all be proud of in this region. It is a uh, rigorous process to achieve a designation by UNESCO. It's quite a daunting uh, application nomination process that's taken us just over five years to attain. Hmm. And what was it about the region? Well, I guess first, tell us what specific region are we talking about? House Sound Biosphere Region is actually encompasses the watershed, partial watershed of House Sound. So from approximately Lighthouse Park uh, cross over to Gower Point, just uh, beyond Gibson's, and then uh, height of land, tops of the mountains, all the way up to just below Whistler area. So all the waters that uh, fall onto the tops of the mountains that drain into the House Sound Marine Area. And for anybody that's familiar with that area, which I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are, a, a very beautiful part of the world, both what you can see and what you can't see under the water. I know we've talked on this program before about the glass sponge reefs and how important they are. Uh, is it kind of that, that diversity of, of what we're looking at in that area that helped get the designation? Absolutely. Biosphere regions around the world, and there's over 700 of them, are really areas of ecological significance internationally. So in House Sound, we're just, in Akatsum House Sound, we're just so, uh, we're so rich with biodiversity. We have the very deep waters where we have these very rare fragile glass bundries, uh, very important um, internationally that they were discovered here. And then, you know, within 30 minutes, half an hour, people can come into contact easily with uh, all kinds of wildlife from just drive from downtown Vancouver. And having the designation then, what does it actually mean about the future of the area? Or does it change anything as far as what can be done or as far as research, what will be done in the area? This is really, this designation is a recognition of the tremendous work of so many organizations and, and governments over the last 20, 30 years uh, that has resulted in a environmental recovery. So it's very fragile, and it's extremely important that we continue to collaborate with the communities around the Sound and different levels of government and sectors on continuing to strive towards um, whatever we do in this area for development is done in a sustainable, thoughtful way. That, yes, we attract more, re- more research, more education, gather up more data to help us make better decisions. 
because in in the way you described it, looking at that area, am I am I right in saying that Britannia Beach that is part of it? That's right. Yes, yes, and that's one of our good news stories. There is the is the uh, you know the cleanup of that area and uh, the waters around there that are now. Once again, one can be fishing and prawning. Uh, and and that was that part of the application, or was that part of what made this an area again that's that is the focus of this, and and will be the focus moving forward? Certainly, that is one of our stories. Uh, the Britannia Mine Museum is uh, is a recognized uh, heritage site, as well as Lighthouse Park, and uh, we have many different areas around the sound that have helped make up our story, our great story here. Uh, do you know then, as far as UNESCO designated the, the UNESCO biosphere regions, uh, what kind of company is, is this region now in as far as other, other places around the world? Well, this, we are the 19th in Canada, and most people don't realize that they've actually been in the biosphere region, but if they've been to Tofino and they've visited then they have visited the beautiful, very beautiful Clockwatt Sound biosphere region. Uh, when you travel over to Vancouver Island and you go to Parksville and, uh, and Cathedral Grove Forest, you're in the Mount Aerosmith biosphere region. So this is an opportunity for people to do a little bit of homework and Googling and, and look at all those places that, in fact, they may have visited and enjoyed. Does it then, is it a, a bit of um in that, on the one hand, we're talking about conservation, we're talking about sustainable, sustainable mm-hmm. development, but does it also draw more people or create more of a buzz that people want to visit? And, and obviously things are a little different because of the pandemic, but people then put it on their list of places they want to go as far as a destination? Well, we would like to think so. I think people, travelers these days, are looking for areas that, uh, that practice sustainable tourism uh, these are areas that, um, as we know, that we've just talked about, there's great beauty and they have great diversity and there's wonderful recreational values here. So uh, there are travelers that will choose to do that. And we, also, we hope that this also, though, sends a message to all people that are visiting this region that, uh, you know, you want to learn about these important and fragile areas and, and do what you can to uh, respect and take care of this uh, area that is also the uh, traditional and unceded ter- territory of the Squamish Nation and other First Nations. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because you also touched on, again, that five-year uh, period of, of getting the application, of getting this designation. Uh, it must have only happened because of collaboration and so many people in this region working together. That's right. The nomination could not go forward without the endorsement of all the uh, parties that, are, that have authorities over the land and uh, the collaboration with Squamish Nation on ensuring that this was a uh, quality nomination and application has been uh, really terrific. In this region, we've had um, what we call the House Sound Community Forums for just going on 20 years now. And that has always been a gathering of um, representatives from around the Sound, including the Squamish Nation, have been at the table. So uh, we look forward to strengthening that collaboration going forward. And we're very pleased to have our co-chair from, um, from the Squamish Nation, uh, Councilmember Joyce Williams.
Mm. I just wanted to touch one more more time on the the glass sponge mm. reefs because I know this was part of the news release about this designation as well and some of the background. Uh, the discovery of these glass sponge reefs made by citizen scientists. Citizen scientists, can you talk a little bit more about that and just how important that particular discovery is? Yes, uh, I'm glad you asked that. The uh, the citizen science, uh, scientists in House Sound are amazing, actually. And uh, so really through the passion that people have for, for diving, for scuba diving, for uh, spending time on the water, um, and the, you know, the quality and intelligence of the people that come and do this type of work uh, has brought us to this place where we've been able through their, their work and then sharing their their uh, knowledge and information with uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, who have ground-truthed uh, those discoveries, then we've been able to see this protection of these important sponge reefs go from that exploration and discovery by citizens right through to policy and protections. All right. And just to clarify for people as well, when we're talking about a UNESCO biosphere region, it's not the same thing as, say, a park or anything like that. It's not like it's a new park or something. This is just a a specific designation. Yes, it's a framework. uh, And the objectives, however, are for biodiversity conservation. So it's one of the pillars very important pillars of, uh, especially right now as we face the challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change together, then um, more important than ever that we really focus our efforts on conserving those important habitats in this region. All right. We will leave it there. Congratulations on the designation. Thank and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.